0: Welcome to another episode of Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast. As always, I'm your host Brad Soboleski, and today we are going to talk about the management of children with hemophilia and other bleeding disorders in the emergency department. Most of the time where I work, I actually know that these children are coming ahead of time, and many parents bring their own factor with them. More than anything else, I want to get across that factor first. Is the most important thing you can remember when caring for children with hemophilia in the ed if the parents brought factor with them well then give theirs if not order it as soon as possible from the pharmacy know also that there are no consensus guidelines for the management of hemophilia in the emergency department so you'll have to be familiar with local practice guidelines and recommendations and again let me reiterate that this episode is not about making the diagnosis of hemophilia or all of the genetic variation. This is really about the management of children with hemophilia and related bleeding disorders in the emergency department. And just kids kids have a bleeding problem, it doesn't mean that they won't roll out of bed, lacerate their chin on the corner of a coffee table, or take a tumble on their way to biology class. Many of these patients receive regular factor infusions and have complex management regimen. Others will have a history of hemophilia, but really no bleeding risk at all, so it can truly be overwhelming to parse this out in the ED. And there's time for that, just not at first. Again, give factor first if the patient warrants it, then come back and learn the interesting details of their disease later. These patients will always need triage priority as well, so make sure you understand what happens when patients arrive at your front door or are referred in by your hematologist. The three main diseases I'll talk about today are hemophilia A, which is an X-linked recessive disease. It's a deficiency of factor VIII. It occurs in about one of 5,000 males, and 80% of all hemophilia patients have hemophilia A. One-third of hemophilia A patients have severe disease, and the treatment is IV factor VIII. Hemophilia B is also an X-linked recessive disease, and it's a deficiency of factor IX. It's much less common than hemophilia A, occurring in 1 in 30,000 males. But, in contrast to hemophilia A, 60% of hemophilia B patients have severe disease. Treatment is IV factor 9. And then von Willebrand's. This is actually the most common bleeding disorder in the United States. Only 10% of lab-defined von Willebrand's patients have clinical disease. And there's multiple subtypes generally a deficit in the amount and function of von Willebrand's factor, and treatments include von Willebrand factor infusions or desmopressin. So again, hemophilia A, hemophilia B, and von Willebrand's are the three main bleeding disorders you'll see in pediatric patients in the ED. Further complicating matters is that all of these have varying ranges of severity, so you need to know whether the patient is severe, so they have multiple bleeding episodes per month, usually in the joints and soft tissues. They can also have spontaneous bleeds. Or are they moderate? They typically bleed four to six times per year, generally with mild trauma, or mild. They mainly hemorrhage with surgery or significant trauma. You're certainly going to see more moderate and severe patients in the ED. You also have to know whether or not there's the presence of inhibitors. These can increase the risk of significant bleeding. These inhibitors, well, inhibit clotting factors, and they develop over time, occurring more often in children with certain genetic risk factors and in those who get lots of factor infusions early on in life. One-third of hemophilia A patients have them, compared with only about 6.5% of hemophilia B patients. The presence of inhibitors may mean that you need to administer a bypass agent in the emergency department. All right. So let's take a look at some of the ways that these patients will present to the emergency department in a little bit of detail and how to treat them. I'm not really going to review factor dosing recommendations specifically, but that information is available on a related blog post at pemblog.com. There's multiple different brand names and types of factor that you can give. The most common one for hemophilia A, factor 8 deficiency, is advate. So remember, factor 8, advate. For hemophilia B, a common one is benefix. It ends in IX, like 9, the Roman number, so benefix, IX, factor 9. Von Willebrand's patients are generally defined as whether or not they're responsive to desmopressin or not. Those who are responsive can get desmopressin intranasally or IV. Those who are not get von Willebrand's concentrates delivered via IV. One more treatment caveat. Don't prioritize getting labs over the administration of factor. Early factor treatment helps decrease the total factor requirement and length of hospitalization, hence factor first. Access a central line or port if they have one, and check with local recommendation on which labs you should get. In general, a CBC and a type and screen are fair game. Specific factor levels and coags are necessary only if hematology asks for them. All right, so let's take a look at some of the common bleeding presentations that kids with hemophilia and more severe types of von Willebrands will have when they present to the ED. And this starts with hemarthrosis. This is the most common bleeding symptom and problem in hemophiliacs. They will complain of mild pain in the joint, at least initially, that progresses to more significant pain, swelling, redness, and decreased range of motion. The ankles, elbows, and knees are the most common joints affected. Hemarthrosis is usually clinically apparent. Unless you suspect a fracture, you don't need to get plain x-rays. Ultrasound is sensitive as well, but again, most patients you can make the diagnosis based on history and physical exam, and you really don't need imaging. The treatment is early factor administration, ice, a compression bandage, and acetaminophen, plus or minus opiates if the pain is more significant. Don't give NSAIDs, as they can add an antiplatelet effect that the patient does not need. Corticosteroids don't have evidence for their use. Joint aspiration is also not recommended. Many patients can actually be managed at home after a single dose of factor in the ED. Experienced parents may actually want to manage this at home in its entirety and bypass the emergency department, but that's the job of the hematologist. Next up, let's talk about muscle bleeds. This is the second most common bleeding problem seen in patients with hemophilia who present to the ED. Treatment is, of course, IV factor and... Tylenol plus or minus opiates for pain. The main complication of note is compartment syndrome. Nerve compression can also occur and is worrisome. Iliopsoas hemorrhage is the most important type of muscle bleed that occurs in hemophiliacs that can cause long-term morbidity. Patients can lose a lot of blood. They'll complain of a combination of thigh, hip, and abdomen and or groin pain. The long-term risk is development of a devastating hip flexion contracture. Patients can also end up with femoral nerve paresthesias. Iliopsoas hemorrhage occurs without warning. Factor treatment goals are higher than those with other types of muscle bleeds. These patients need to be admitted and placed on strict bed rest followed by 7 to 14 days of inpatient treatment. If you need imaging or if HEM recommends it, MRI is preferred, but ultrasound and CT can be used as well. The incidence of intracranial hemorrhage in hemophiliacs is much lower than that of joint and muscle bleeds, and that's great because it can be pretty devastating. As many as 1 in 50 children with hemophilia can have intracranial hemorrhage. The most common risk factors for intracranial hemorrhage are severe hemophilia, the presence of inhibitors, and a history of trauma. Only drowsiness in a history of loss of consciousness predicted intracranial hemorrhage in hemophiliacs in one study by Whitmer. Altered mental status is predictive, but again, normal mental status can't exclude the possibility of intracranial hemorrhage. You should have the lowest possible threshold to give factor when there's any history of head trauma, even minor, in a hemophiliac. Ideally, it should be given within six hours. Give factor before imaging. Head CT is quick and readily available to identify bleeding, but you should not delay giving factor to get the scan. And it goes without saying that you should not apply the PCARN Clinically Important Traumatic Brain Injury Clinical Decision Rule to hemophiliacs as it does not apply. MRI may better identify posterior fossa bleeding in hemophiliacs, and if it's available, it can be an option to discuss with radiology. In Von Willebrand's disease, there are no consensus guidelines to help for when to obtain head imaging. Some types actually have more bleeding than others, so types 2N and 3 are more at risk because they're more like hemophilia, but any child with an abnormal neurologic exam or depressed mental status after a head injury should be imaged. Let's talk about a few more before we close things out today. So GI hemorrhage. This is less often seen in hemophiliacs and may actually represent another process rather than the hemophilia itself. Treatment is IV factor, appropriate resuscitation, IV proton pump inhibitors, and consultation with GI and heme. Kids with significant hemorrhage need to be admitted. Renal and genitourinary hemorrhage is also rare in hemophiliacs. Treatment is, you guessed it, IV factor, and aggressive rehydration with fluids at least at a rate of 1.5 times maintenance. Antifibrinolytic agents like TXA can precipitate renal thrombi and are not recommended. Nose and oral mucosal bleeds in hemophiliacs should be managed with factor, direct pressure, oxymetolazone spray to the nares, and maybe, in contrast to renal or genitourinary hemorrhage, antifibrinolytic agents like TXA and epsilon immunocaproic acid. Minor bruises, wounds, and lacerations should get factor and then repair as you normally would. Soft tissue injuries, just big bruises, may also occur in conjunction with muscle bleeds. Ultrasound, MRI, or CT can help make the diagnosis if you're concerned. And menorrhagia treatment consists both of factor as well as hormonal contraceptives. Otherwise, speak early with hematology and gynecology if you're concerned. And as I alluded to earlier, there are just many different types of replacement factor. And just like units of blood, factors can come in odd aliquots. It's also super expensive, so wasting it is not a good idea. So if hematology recommends 25 units per kilo, and the available aliquot of Advate is 24.3 units per kilo, it's okay not to order more. That 0.7 units per kilo is probably not going to make a big difference. In order to be respectful of cost, just round up to the nearest number of vials. With that said, hematologists can generally predict how much each unit of factor will increase plasma levels. Per Schwartz, one unit per kilo of factor 8 will increase factor 8 in the recipient's plasma by about 2%, whereas one unit per kilo of factor 9 will increase the factor 9 in the recipient's plasma by about 1%. Always consult with hematology regarding specific dosing and goals. For severe bleeds, patients without an inhibitor, the following general dosing considerations are a good starting point. Hemophilia A, the initial dose of factor VIII, 50 units per kilo. For hemophilia B, the initial dose of factor IX, 100 units per kilo. For less significant bleeds, for instance, a mild hemarthrosis, lower factor doses may be recommended. So hemophilia A, the initial dose of factor VIII, would be 25 units per kilo, and for hemophilia B, the initial dose of factor IX can be 50 units per kilo. Now on PEMblog.com, I've put a table with dosing and duration of therapy recommendations for different hemophilia-related bleeds that you can take a look at, as well as dosing of von Willebrand's factor concentrates for major and minor bleeding and surgery. And finally... These are some questions that you should always remember to ask in the emergency department that will help you take a better history and provide the best possible care. Number one, which bleeding disorder does the child have? Is their disease severe, moderate, or mild? Does the patient have an inhibitor? And if so, what does hematology recommend you do about it? What is the dose and specific factor or medicine that the patient needs to get? Did they bring their home dose of factor with them? And do they have a port or other type of existing access? If you have answers to all of these, then you will be able to efficiently and effectively give factor first and make a difference in the hemophiliac or patient with significant bleeding disorder presenting to the emergency department. Well, that's all I've got for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I would urge you all to think systematically and deliberately about how you will manage a patient with hemophilia in the emergency department, know how your referral process from hematology works, and what happens to these patients in triage. If the family brings the factor with them, then give the home supply. Otherwise order it from pharmacy and administer as fast as possible. Do not delay other tests or interventions and give factor first. Thank you again for listening. I would be incredibly appreciative if you could leave feedback on the blog or wherever you get your podcast content. Follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets and check out the Facebook page. I'd be delighted to hear any thoughts you have on content for upcoming episodes. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.